I've been uh, thinking this week a lot about the word great. Great. It's a word we use a lot for all kinds of different reasons. I suppose it means immense or profound or big. Something is great. We call all kinds of things great. Ge geographical, uh, 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 prominent geographical features we call great, as in the Great Smokies or the Great Barrier Reef. Some uh, animals, animal types are called great, as in the Great White Shark. People are sometimes called great, as in Herod the Great, or Catherine and Peter the Great, two czars of, of Russia. Even popes, Gregory the Great, do you ever wonder why? What is it that distinguishes those people? Why would they be called great? My favorite person called great, and, and the person called great who probably had the most profound effect on all of us is Alexander the Great. Alexander, we are who we are in many respects because Alexander the Great conquered a huge hunk of the world, including virtually, including absolutely all of the Eastern Mediterranean, 300 years before Christ. The, f the fact that the New Testament is written in Greek is because of the fact that Alexander the Great conquered that part of the world and made it Greek for centuries. Even after the Romans came by, it remained Greek. Greek was the lingua franca. People studied Greek philosophers in a town called, especially in a town called Alexandria. In fact, I didn't count, but there are 20 or 30 cities around the world called Alexandria after Alexander the Great, including there's one on the other side of the Potomac, I think. Alexander conquered from the Danube in the north to Ethiopia in the south to the Indus River in the east. The Indus River is, gives India its name. It's today actually in, in Pakistan, what we call Pakistan. There's a story about Alexander. When he got to the Indus River, he saw a, a holy man sitting on a rock naked. And he went up to the holy man and he said, what are you doing? And the holy man, uh, the gymnosophist in Greek, the, the holy man said, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about nothingness. And Alexander said, what a waste of time. And the holy man said to Alexander, what are you doing? And Alexander said, I'm conquering the world. And the holy man said, what a waste of time. <laughs> you see, I have two very, very different worldviews. And in fact, that story used uh, a fair amount to talk about the different worldview of East and West, the way, the way things are seen differently in East and West. Uh, 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 possibly this is b because the, the, the whole idea of death is different in East and West. In the, in the West, what Alexander, Alexander was, was tutored by the great Aristotle. And what Aristotle taught Alexander was when you die, you're ferried across the river to the Elysian fields, the Champs-Élysées. And when you get there, every day is a good day in companionship with all of your fellow warriors, all the people you love are all there, and it's just wonderful. But you can't come back. The, uh, the, the, the holy man in India was taught something different. When you die, you go to the bardo, which is like a waiting room 
where you wait to discover your next life. And then you, you go back and you do it all over again. Groundhog's Day. So you see, they're just two totally different uh, worldviews. There's nothing, that from the Eastern point of view, there's nothing new under the sun. All is, all is vanity. And, and of course, that is a quote from the book of Ecclesiastes, which is part of the Hebrew Bible that we read. So what made Alexander great? Why do we call him great? Was it because of his great conquests? He died when he was 32 years old, having conquered most of the world he knew. His army had revolted, but he still controlled a great hunk of what we now call the Eastern Mediterranean from Greece all the way around to Egypt and Libya. Uh, why was he called great? Well, Plutarch, for those of you who are into ancient uh, history, Plutarch wrote a lot of books, Roman, a Roman uh, biographer. Plutarch wrote a biography of, uh, of uh, Alexander, and he said his greatness came from the, vir this is a quote, the virtues of courage, self-control, and humility rather than the violence of war. His greatness came from the virtues of courage, self-control, and humility. Not what we always think of when we think of greatness is it? An equally interesting quote from antiquity predates Alexander by a bit. A Greek philosopher named Isocrates wrote this, uh, talking about greatness. He said, um, one who, a, a great king is one who governs himself and is therefore shown worthy of governing others. One who governs himself is therefore shown worthy of governing others. May have some currency. I didn't say anything. So greatness, at least in antiquity, had something to do with authority and power, but not that alone. Greatness was about humility and kindness and self-control what Aristotle taught Alexander as virtues. You wouldn't ever think of children as great, would you? Well, I, I shouldn't put it that way. Children are great. But you wouldn't think of them as great in the same sense as Alexander the Great or Peter the Great. Or any of the children are lovable, adorable, cute, playful, but not great in any profound sense. In fact, in Jesus' day, in, in antiquity, children were kind of a nuisance. The parents loved them, of course, but they were another mouth to feed in a world of scarcity. And particularly if you were of the peasant class, you could only afford to have so many of them. You need them, because as, as we grow old, we, we, they, we, today still, need our children to take care of us. And in those days, it was even much, much more important because somebody had to carry on the trade, carry on the name, carry on the trade, make money to feed us so we could eat in our old age. But too many children was a problem. 
And so children were frequently put out of the, put out of the household, which is to say left in the woods. If you had too many, you leave them in the woods. Uh, often enough, they were adopted by someone else, another farmer, someone else, but not always. And often enough, they didn't survive. The, the, uh, uh, there are lots and lots of stories from antiquity about uh, children who were adopted. Um, uh, I guess the most obvious one is Romulus and Remus, who founded Rome, were um, adopted by a she-wolf, it is said and raised on the banks of the Tiber by a pack of wolves, and, and, and from that came the city of Rome. I don't know if that's true, but I do know that putting children out into the woods to die was fairly common in ancient days. I wonder if you've ever thought about what makes a great church. What's greatness in a well, what's greatness in any organization, I suppose? But since we're here, what makes a great church? It's an interesting question. A pretty important question, actually. I, for me, a great church is a church with an attitude. A church that's not happy with the way things are in some sense. That needs to right a wrong somewhere, correct an injustice, make things better in their little corner of the, of the cosmos. It could be a church, a great church is a big Gothic church with wonderful architecture, I'm for that. A church with a great history, I'm for that. A church with fantastic music, I'm for that. But I think greatness really has something to do with a need to, a passion for justice in the world which can so frequently be unjust. I know a church in Maryland where the, the organizing principle of the church, the central theme, the passion, is racial reconciliation. Nothing happens in that church that, that is not interracial. Everything is interracial. It's changed the entire area in which that church exists. I know it, I, the church that sent me to seminary uh, was passionate about poverty. The, the staff, the, the only professional staff were the clergy and a social worker who was an advocate for the poor who would come through the door of that church. I know a church in Virginia that, um, whose passion is, uh, re is the refugee problem, refugee crisis. And they support a number of, of, of advocacy groups, but what they really do is Lots and lots of members volunteer to teach English as a second language to people in their catchment area, which is very large, who um, want to learn colloquial English, American, we might call it. So, I mean, those are not big churches, and none of them have distinguished architecture. A couple of them have pretty terrific music, but what they really have is passion. What they really have is a need to correct a wrong. I think that might be important in deciding what is a great church. One day, Jesus was walking along the road with his disciples, and he was telling them, not for the first time, that he was about to be turned over to the authorities and 
executed, and that he would then rise to new life after that. One can only imagine that they were totally confused. In fact, the text that we just read says that. In fact, the disciples never really get it, do they, until after the resurrection. So the conversation among them must have been a, one of total befuddlement. What are we to do? What's going to happen to us? If this is true, if he's going to be, what, what about us? Who's going to take over? What about the movement? Who's going to be in charge? Who's the greatest? Well, when they got to where they were going, they sat down and Jesus taught them, saying, what were you talking about? And whether, I don't know, the text doesn't say, it doesn't record what they said. Maybe they said, we're trying to figure out who's gonna take over, trying to figure out who's, who among us is the most important, who among us is the greatest. And Jesus said, it's not important. It doesn't matter. What matters is the ministry. What matters is the mission. What matters is the call to serve. What matters is how we treat people. Jesus said, take for example, this child, completely defenseless, vulnerable to everything, vulnerable to being put out, unable to defend herself in any way. Leadership, greatness, is about caring for that child. Greatness is about loving the people. Greatness is about loving your neighbor and especially the neighbor who most needs your love, even if it's someone you're uncomfortable with. Everything else is a waste of time. Everything else is just kidding ourselves. It matters not how you organize it. It matters not what you say about it. It matters what you do about it. And there's a payoff. There's a payoff. Because following the gospel imperative to love in this way allows one to harvest what Paul called the fruits of the Spirit. When we do the impossible, do the counterintuitive, when we give of ourselves, even if it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, when we do that, our reward is love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness, generosity of spirit. And maybe above all, we learn self-control. These are Paul's fruits of the spirit. This is the payoff for a life in Christ. This is what it means to be, what it means when Jesus says the one who would be master of all must be servant of all. That is our calling as Christian people 
and it's our calling as a Christian church. Amen.